Now this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we want to pause really and hold a magnifying glass over one verse in particular, and that verse is Matthew 11.12. Matthew 11.12. And whereby Jesus declares, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Really, it's a curious verse. We only spent a few minutes on it last week, but one that I believe may have more to say to us regarding how exactly it is that we are entering into the kingdom of heaven. The older I get, though, the more cautious I am becoming when I consider slinging mud at the church, especially the American church. I think, generally speaking, uh, it's something that younger, more zealous believers will tend to do to see the problems But the true church of Christ is the bride of Christ, and I don't think that he takes too kindly at people attacking her, no matter how many flaws she has. However, if we learn anything from the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we see that there are times it's right to call out sinful behavior in the church. The Bible tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. And so for our purposes, I want to really speak to the issues of dead orthodoxy and lazy spirituality. In Revelation chapter 3... Again, this is all by way of introduction. In Revelation 3, the Apostle John records a message from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church in Sardis. He records in Revelation 3 to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. uh, Excuse me, Jesus really warns the church about the problem of deadness, that they have a living gospel, but they're spiritually dead. That's the church in Sardis. A few verses later, his message to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, difficult words to hear from our Lord to his various churches. Oftentimes referred to as the lukewarm church, Christ is warning believers of the dangers of practicing a lazy, useless Christianity. We noted last week that nobody simply strolls into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody coasts in. There is an earnestness. There is an energy, a a striving, an intentionality to the Christian life. Taken further, J.C. Ryle says this. He notes it is a holy violence. A conflict, a warfare, a fight, he says. A soldier's life, a wrestling. He says these are all spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. And I believe this is what we're meant to consider in terms of the tone of Matthew eleven twelve. And so if you haven't already turned to Matthew 11, please do so. Again, Matthew chapter 11, only looking at verse 12 today. Last week we did look at verses 7 through 15, so we took the whole narrative as one big chunk. Now we're going back and focusing on one small piece of it. But really, Jesus is expounding both the importance of John the Baptist's ministry 
as well as the earth-shattering events that are taking place in the course of salvation history. John, who really is the forerunner to the prophesied Messiah, has announced the arrival of Jesus to the earth, even calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John preached in the wilderness, calling all of his hearers to repent of their sins and to prepare their hearts to receive the Lord. Not too long after the Lord Jesus goes public with his ministry, John is arrested by King Herod and he's thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he starts to have troubling thoughts and possibly even doubts. And he sends two disciples to ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus reassures him in Matthew 11, 4 through 6. He says, go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, the kingdom has broken in because the king is here. But then Jesus really turns his attention to the crowd. He shifts away from answering John's disciples and sort of shifts his focus and starts looking at who is there in front of him. And he begins to really quiz the people in front of him, the crowds, on the identity of John the Baptist. Who is he? You've just seen his disciples walk away, and I've given them an answer. Well, who is he? And he asks this question, who who did you go out to the wilderness to see? And he kind of gives a survey of options. He says, did you go out to see a a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a, a fickled, unstable preacher who was kind of all over the place? And the answer is no. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Really, a cowardly, effeminate preacher? No, John is anything but that. Then he says, well, what about a prophet? And the answer is yes, he is a prophet. But then he adds, he's more than a prophet. Furthermore, he's the greatest man who's ever been born because he brings the greatest message ever delivered. That's the reason. It's not that John inherently in and of himself is the greatest. John says, I'm just a voice calling out in the wilderness. I'm, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. I, I must decrease. But rather, John, in Jesus' words, is the greatest because of what he brings, what he does, who he is in the realm of salvation history. And his message is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this was a a new message for a new era. Whereas before, people were trapped in their sin, kept in bondage under the law. But now the captain of salvation has come, and he has freed all the captives, granting entrance to the kingdom of heaven. And now, hell's prisons are being emptied, and forgiven sinners are flooding into heaven. And it's of this marvelous reality that Jesus is speaking. Again, Matthew eleven twelve. Look again at this with me. I want to get this firmly fixed in our minds here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. I confess to you, I've had this verse stuck in my head for about 15 years. I've heard messages preached on this, and every now and then... I'll I'll see it in my Bible reading, or I'll see it on a note card, or I'll remember it. And I think to myself, this is a marvelous verse. What does it mean? Now, I have a sense of what it means, but your heart cries out, Lord, what does this mean for me, for you, for the world, for your kingdom? 
Now again, we worked through this a little bit last week, but I want to untangle even more of this verse today. I want to bring out even further application. Again, verse 12, in the context, verse 12, Jesus is speaking of the transitional nature of the events that are taking place, because now everything is changing. The old covenant is passing away. We know the new covenant is about to be inaugurated. And really, from the beginning of this verse, it marks sort of a time stamp, a time stamp. And I know that you all and have experienced this, per, per, certainly in your own lives, but certainly in the course of history, there are certain events that take place in your life, and you look back years later and you say, okay, yeah, I, I didn't know it at the time, but that day changed my life. Maybe it was your marriage. Maybe the day you got married, everything changed. Maybe it was the birth of your first child. Maybe it was the starting of a new job or when you got a, a diagnosis of an illness or maybe when you moved to a new city. Or maybe it was just the day that the Lord got a hold of you and opened your eyes to salvation. But we have these markers in our mind of that day changed everything. And we know the course of human events. I remember uh, 9-11, when 9-11 happened, thinking to myself, things are never going to be the same ever again. And they certainly haven't been since. But Jesus is speaking of this transitional event, this time stamp. Excuse me. And Jesus notes here, from the days of John the Baptist until now. Now, this is a very short period of time. And when he says the days of John the Baptist, he's no doubt referring to his public ministry. He's not talking about when he was a little boy. Certainly, it's about his preaching ministry. In this period of time, at this point in the course of the narrative, is only about maybe 18 months. It's not a long period of the course of history, But this is a short transitional period, but it's marking the seismic shift in redemption history. Jesus is calling this out. Everything's going to change from this point on. And remember, John is technically the last Old Testament prophet. People oftentimes think it's Malachi. It's not Malachi. It's John. Because number one, he's identified as a prophet. And number two, he's not yet quite ministering in the new covenant. Now, he sees Jesus, he calls Jesus and knows who he is, but John doesn't really have the gospel yet. And part of the reason we know this is not only does John not preach the full gospel, but even as far as Acts 19, many years later, the disciples of John, when the apostles get to them, they don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit. They don't understand what this new regeneration is all about. And so they minister the gospel to them, they become converted, and things progress. So John really is the last Old Covenant prophet, and he's still functioning within that covenant because Christ has not yet inaugurated the new covenant, which he will do in a matter of months from this point. But all of history had been waiting for this moment. Everything is changing in this moment. Jesus even says this in verse 13. He says, All of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The law and the prophets, that's a shorthand for all of the Bible. And all of the Bible encompasses all of human history because the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. So from the very start of all of it. So all of redemptive history had been eagerly awaiting with anticipation this moment. Every human being since Adam had been trapped in sin, waiting redemption. And every Jew in Israel certainly was aware that they were being held under the law, awaiting release. But everything was about to change, starting with the coming of John the Baptist, followed by 
Jesus. There's a very interesting prophecy, and I read about this a few years ago, and it really piqued my interest. The prophecy recorded in Micah 2, Micah 2, whereby Israel is warned of the coming judgment of God. But the end of Micah 2, and it's interesting, the end of Micah 2 predicts deliverance and the regathering of Israel. Micah 2, 12 and 13 records this. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. Jacob is shorthand for the people of Israel. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Now, Jesus himself uses this exact same imagery, certainly in John 10, but elsewhere as well, likening his people to sheep in a sheep pen. And if you've read John 10, and I've referenced it many, many times, I've taught through it years ago, but John 10 is a fascinating chapter. I love John 10. But really, he, he, he lays out this imagery of the sheep that are in this sheep pen, and he talks about thieves and robbers trying to break in, and really, they, they can only, the only one who can come in through the door is the sheep, uh, 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 the shepherd of the sheep, the one who actually has the key to get into the door. He talks about leading them back out again. There's lots of imagery about sheep and shepherds and sheep pen. But then here in Micah 2, verse 13, we read this. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. For so their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Very interesting verse. Again, John 10, Jesus describes this event, really leading his sheep out of the sheepfold, And then we read about him calling them by name and they follow him because they know the voice of the shepherd. But Micah 2.13 describes a breaker, a breaker who goes before them. Now this would have been a servant whose job it was to to pull down rocks. A lot of times the old, uh, uh, in Palestine, the the sheep pens and the sheep folds were, were just mounded up rocks and they would go and actually build a wall full of stones and pile up the stones and keep the sheep in that way and they protect from outside animals, wolves and things like that. But then in the morning they would have to unpile those stones at a small opening, unpile the stones and let the sheep out. So this breaker, this person, the job was to pull down all the rocks and all the stones and create this entrance back out of the sheep pen and in doing so he's going to be clearing this path for the shepherd and all the sheep to pass through this small gate and go out into pasture. Some Bible scholars believe that this breaker is none other than John the Baptist in terms of the imagery. And if that's true, it sheds some light on Matthew eleven twelve. Again, John is going before them and clearing this straight path. Then the Lord comes, as Micah says, and they break out of the fold. How does one break out of something, of a fold? How do you break out? Do you do it casually? Do you do it timidly? Easily? No. I would argue from our text that you do it violently. Violently. Now Jesus declares that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Where textual scholars are confused is the rendering of this Greek word. Beizatai is where we, this word that's used here, there are several uh, usages in the context of the verse. It's used twice, actually. 
If we render this word in the middle voice, not to bog you down with grammar, but if we render this in the middle voice, it reads something like this. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. Now, we know that it is. That's certainly true. Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 said that he builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there is an essence of the kingdom of heaven forcefully advancing upon the gates of hell. But the Greek word can also be rendered in the passive. The kingdom of heaven is being forcefully advanced upon, or translated this way, suffering violence. And we know the exact same root word is used in the next phrase, that they're violent or violent men are those who take it by force. It's really hard not to prefer this second option. And scholars go back and forth about which one it is, but the question is, well, what does this mean? What does it mean, again, looking at this, that, that violent men would take the kingdom of heaven by force? What does this mean? Does it mean that violent, wicked men, enemies of Christ, are trying to take hold of the kingdom? It doesn't really make any sense. And some have argued and sort of reasoned this way that, well, maybe it's referring to the, the opposition, the persecution of trying to take hold of the kingdom. But we have to conclude that Jesus is referring really more to the character and quality of those who are taking hold of the kingdom and entering in because we know that the unrighteous, that the wicked cannot seize or take hold and possess the kingdom of heaven. But is, it, is that how believers are to enter heaven? Do we just harpazo? Do we just take it by force? We understand that there is only one gospel and only one way to heaven. And the only way to get to heaven is to come through Christ by faith. By faith. The Bible is crystal clear about this. The gospel hasn't changed even in Matthew eleven twelve, 12. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. In other words, you can't actually grab it, open up the gates yourself, and force your way in. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. If you're saved, it's because God has been gracious to you. He has extended to you, as we read in the Scriptures earlier, His steadfast love, His loving kindness. Galatians 2.16, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. See, all of us have sinned against God and we are thereby worthy of His judgment. But God, again, in His loving kindness, sends His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And that through His death, burial, and resurrection, we have access to God through Christ. And now because of that access through Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have life in Him. We have reconciliation to the Father. Again, all these things are graces that have been given to us freely. And so the means by which we receive eternal life is faith in Christ. That has not changed, will not change. That is the same forever. It's a fixed truth forever. And so again, no amount of human effort can break you out of hell or break you into heaven. Christ does it all. And we simply receive it as a gift by faith and faith alone. But here's the thing, I do not believe that Jesus is making a theological statement in verse 12 here. I really don't, because of what we know is true of the gospel. But rather, it's an observation based on an imperative. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. 
Remember that back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13, Jesus tells the crowd, and he finishes this very long sermon and full of truth. We spent several weeks, if not months, going through this Sermon on the Mount, a glorious sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached. And how does Jesus land the sermon? He lands by giving a decision. And here's the decision. There's only two roads here. There's no third way. Two roads, one way that's the broad way that leads to destruction, and the narrow way which leads to life. And what does he command? What is his imperative? What is imperative of the hearer who has ears to hear? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate. Now, is this an easy way? Is this the easy way to go? He says, no. In fact, he adds in verse 14, for that gate is small. It's very small, very narrow, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. We talked about this months ago. This is the the difficult way. The broad way, the easy way, that's the way that feels good to go, but it's the way that leads to destruction. No, it's this very narrow, rigid, small, difficult way. That's the way that leads to life, and it is only a few who find it. But their imperative command is this. Jesus tells the hearer, he's telling you, enter that narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. And in Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus is describing what it looks like to see the stones cleared away and a flood of new believers streaming through this narrow gate. What does it look like? When sheep finally have a taste of freedom and run out. Have you ever seen cows or sheep being let out of the pen? If you've ever seen, and we've looked at this before, ever see cows after a very long winter being led out of their barn for the first time, what do they do? You see these thousand pound animals jumping and kicking their legs and leaping. And you see even when sheep do it, they smoosh together and they're, they're clawing at each other and pushing it against each other to get through this opening. It's not that they've opened the door themselves, but when they go through, they're, they're fighting with each other to get through because they can't wait to get to the other side. That's generally the imagery here. It's like a jailbreak. Christ has set free all the captives and they're racing out of hell with joy and exuberance and storming the gates of heaven. Jesus is describing the nature of what it looks like for all those who would enter into life. Writing in the 16th century, John Calvin really captures, I believe, the heart of this passage. He writes this. There is now taking place a great popular uprising, as if men were violently storming and occupying the kingdom of God. For when one man uplifts his voice, they turn out in regiments and snatch at the proffered grace, not merely greedily, but violently. And although very many slumber and are no more touched than if John had been telling them fairy stories in the wilderness, yet many hasten when violent zeal. The intention of Christ's statement is this. They are inexcusable who contemptuously shut their eyes to the revealed power of God who shines both in the teacher and in the hearers. And we learn from these words what is the true nature and way of faith, that men assent to God when He speaks not coldly or out of mere duty, but aspiring after him with burning affection, so as to say, breaking through by a vehement effort. That's a lot to say, isn't it, for one verse? 
Friends, heaven is entered by holy violence. Holy violence. Now we need to qualify this. I want to qualify this. Don't anybody leave this morning without having a footnote for what I'm talking about. First we need to say what this is not about. What is holy violence not to be? First of all, this holy violence is not a physical violence. I want to say that again. Holy violence of the kingdom is not a physical violence. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 that although we walk in the flesh, we have corporeal bodies, we are here, we're visible, physical people, he says we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are actually divine and spiritual. They're not fleshly. Nobody takes up a sword or a gun or a club and goes after heavenly things. We fight with the weapons of knowledge and truth and obedience. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. Our enemy isn't people. Your enemy and my enemy is not other people. As, As difficult as they might be, as angry as they might get at you, as much as they will hurt you and say terrible things about you, they are not the enemy. They're in fact the mission. Now, the enemy will use them and use their words and use their actions against us, but our enemies are the flesh, our own flesh, our own sinful impulses. Our enemy is the devil, and our enemy is the the evil ideologies of the world. My friends, there are evil philosophies and ideologies And systems at work, even right now, sinister philosophies and sinister things that are going on in the world right now. And the enemy is seizing to take this world captive through wickedness. But holy violence, my friends, is not a physical violence. It's also, number two, not wrought through sinful actions. It's not wrought through sinful actions. In our struggle for Christianity, we do not fight with sinful weapons. We don't have the right to resort back to fleshly impulses and go and fight God's battles for Him using the flesh. We don't slander people. We don't lie. We don't manipulate. We don't lash out. We don't grumble. We don't complain. Those last two are really difficult, aren't they? We fight a holy war with holy violence. But make no mistake about it, we are at war. We are at war. Don't think that we're not, because we are. The Puritan Thomas Watson writes this, The earth is inherited by the meek. Heaven is inherited, however, by the violent. Our life is military. Christ is our captain. The gospel is our banner. The graces are our artillery. And heaven is only taken in a forcible way. So what does it mean to seize heaven by force and take it violently? Well, let me encourage you with a couple of ways to do that. Now, there are numerous things that the Bible teaches about this, but I want us to look at at least four of them. Four of them. How do we take hold of heaven? Again, we are entering heaven by faith. We're not muscling in. But what is the constitution that every Christian must have? What is the way that we do get to heaven in our Christian life, the way that we live? Well, number one, holy violence comes through vigorous faith. Vigorous faith. When we come to Christ, we come by faith. 
but it must not be a flimsy faith. It must be a faith that moves mountains. But what exactly is this? Because there's lots that could be written about faith. It is faith that trusts in the promises of God no matter what is going on. Faith that says, God, whatever you're doing, I might not understand it, but I trust you. And your ways are better than my ways and your purposes are higher than my purposes. Perhaps my favorite verse about faith, honestly, it's not Hebrews 11.1. 1. That's everybody else's favorite. I like Romans 4.19-21 where Paul discusses the nature of Abraham's faith despite being faced with insurmountable odds. Just listen as I read this to you. Speaking of Abraham, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Can you imagine thinking about yourself that way? Well, my body, I'm pretty much dead. That's what Abraham says about himself. Contemplating his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. I love that. I love that. A few things to take note here. God had promised 100-year-old Abraham that his 90-year-old barren wife Sarah was going to bear a son. That's hard to believe. The Lord tells you that. You're 100 years old and you have a 90-year-old wife and she hasn't been able to have kids. You're going to have a kid, really? But if God says so... Abraham says, well, that's good enough for me. Abraham knew the Lord. And the text says that in all that, despite insurmountable opposition, impossible tasks, he did not waver in unbelief. Now, Abraham, he had a hard time in years past, didn't he? There were times he didn't trust the Lord. He struggled greatly. But at this point in his life, at 100 years old, he finally had some faith and some sense knocked into him, and it says he did not waver. What does that mean? Daily he pressed in. He pressed in. He didn't didn't allow himself to fall into weak thoughts and, oh boy, hope God can deliver. He didn't waver in unbelief. Rather, he grew strong in the faith, and in doing so, giving glory to God. Even before he even saw what God was doing, he praised Him. Praise you, God, that you're going to deliver on what you say you're going to do. Didn't happen yet. Praise you, Lord, that you keep your word. Praise you, God, that you keep your promises to me. Hasn't happened yet. Praise you, God. You see what he's doing here? Faith doesn't just become dynamic overnight. It grows stronger the more you come to know God. When you're new in the faith, it's difficult, isn't it? The first try you have as a brand new believer, it rocks your world. But I trusted in Jesus Christ. How come I'm having a hard time? But after you've been saved for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, trials come and you go, yeah, that feels about right. But God's always been faithful to me. He's always kept His word. And even though He doesn't always deliver me out of trouble, He's always with me. And He always preserves me and He loves me and He gives me comfort in my affliction. That's my God. And so he became strong in the faith. And yet with respect to God's promise, Abraham was fully assured, fully assured, completely, couldn't talk him out of it, that God was able to do what he said he was going to do. What about us? When you read the Bible and you learn the promises of God, you learn Christian truth. 
Do you believe Him? Do you believe? Are you fully assured in the promises of God? Holy violence, my friend, in faith, wages war over disbelief and becomes determined to trust God no matter the obstacle. I don't care what is going on. I will trust God. I will. And you talk to yourself. You preach to yourself, as Lloyd-Jones used to say. You tell yourself the truth about God. I will trust you, God. Number two, holy violence comes through a warfare against sin. A warfare against sin. There's probably 50 verses I could go to to illustrate the truth. Perhaps one of the most vivid really even comes from Matthew 5. Jesus, we went through this a couple months ago, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. We looked at this study during the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says this. Listen to this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now again, he's not talking about physical harm. Mark this, God never calls us to hurt ourselves or hurt other people. In fact, self-harm is a sin according to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Your body, my friends, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not called to hurt yourself, to harm yourself. We are called to take care of the body that we've been given. But Jesus, rather, He's talking about this aggressive, this aggressive impulse to oppose anything that would cause you to sin. And he's really articulating the truth that we can't play nice with sin when heaven is at stake. Again, we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, but a person who's been justified doesn't want the sinfulness in their life. And they wage war against it. And Jesus tells us to tear out our proverbial body parts that cause us to sin. And what does that look like? What does it look like? There's a million different illustrations, and I hesitate to even give you illustrations because I don't want you to, to be bent into legalism because you have to figure out what that is. But if there's something in your life that you're doing or watching or engaged in or places you go, or even, I would even dare say, certain people that you would associate with, I'm not talking about mission. I'm talking about if you're engaged with a relationship with somebody that's not your spouse, and that relationship is causing you to stumble, even in your heart, you've got to put up distance and resistance against that and wage war against the impulses inside of you. Romans 8.13, Paul calls for the putting to death of our sinful flesh. John Owen, who writes a marvelous book on the mortification of sin, really describes this, this, this struggling against sin and this, this starving of sin and really choking it out and depleting it of its nourishment. Starving sins to the point where they're almost dead. They'll never fully die in this life, but you, you deplete them. You don't feed them. You deplete your sins. And so to do holy violence to our sinful impulses, that's obedience to God. But my friends, you're hearing me say all this radical stuff. Radical holiness is difficult. That's why it's called violence and warfare. It's hard. It is hard. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite quotes by Tozer, he says this, this tough old miser within me, this old man that just won't go away, 
the old Nate, the old me, the tough old miser within us, he must be torn out of our hearts like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like tooth from a jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. That's the imagery of ripping out things that are painful. But that's the sense. That is the sense that we are to engage in a holy violence through warfare against sin. Number three, holy violence through spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. Now, nobody in America likes discipline, right? But we are called as Christians to be disciplined. What is a spiritual discipline? It is a consistent spiritual practice that brings us closer to God. I'm not talking about theologically. I'm talking about in communion, in daily activity. In his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, Thomas Watson explores some of these. Marvelous book, all about this verse and its implications. But just listen to some of the chapter titles that he writes about. Here's his chapter titles. Offering violence by the reading of the word. Offering violence by the hearing of the word. Ever listen with violence to the word of God being spoken and preached? Offering violence by prayer. Waging war against every impulse, against uh, the desire not to pray. No, I will pray. I'm going to shut things out. I'm going to stop. No, I, I need to pray now. And you fight for that. You fight for that. Offering violence by meditation. Offering violence by self-examination. How about this one? Offering violence by sanctifying the Lord's day. My friends, sometimes it's hard to get here, isn't it? You're out there shoveling your driveway and said, I will get to church. I will get to church, right? But, but that's what this feels like sometimes. Does it ever feel like to you, boy, the enemy just does not want me to do this. God commands me to. I want to do the right thing. I want to do what's righteous. But boy, every impulse in my body, every, everything I hear on the TV or coming across my Facebook feed, uh, the, the voice of the enemy in my ears is fighting against me to do this righteous thing. And you have to punch through that and say, no, I will honor the Lord. I will not grumble and complain. I will love my neighbor. I will deny myself for my spouse and for my children. I will read the Bible. I will pray. And again, you're not willing your way into heaven, but you're fighting this impulse against discipline. And as we kill sins, we also have to put godly activities in their place. You can't just empty out the till and expect nothing else to come in. You have to fill your life and fill your, your heart and your actions with godly impulses. But it's hard work. My friends, take comfort, though. You're not alone. It is hard work. It's difficult to read your Bible every day. It takes effort. Prayer takes focus. When our world is addicted to distraction, prayer takes focus. Self-examination takes humility. I don't want to look at myself. I want to be okay with me. But it takes work. It takes violence and a vigorous attitude to say, no, I'm going to look at this difficult sin. I want to deal with this. I don't like this, and I know God hates this in me. Lord, help me. I want to get rid of this thing. I don't like the way I am here. Lord, I want to honor you. Fix me, Lord. Help me. That takes effort. All these things are difficult. But my friends, you and I, by the power of the Spirit, must get violent. 
in the right ways. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I train like I'm running a race. He says, I I train like I'm competing in a boxing match. Then he says this famously, I run in such a way as not without aim. I don't just stroll casually. I sprint. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Paul understood this. Paul knew what it was like to get violent against sinful impulses and to work hard. We want to just let our bodies and let our lives just kind of be at rest. Oh, I think it's all going to be fine. There's a huge difference between trusting in the Lord and resting in the trust of the Lord and being lazy and not taking our faith seriously. There's a world of difference. But holy violence to our spiritual disciplines. Lastly, number four, holy violence through selfless love. Holy violence through selfless love. The Bible is very clear that the Christian life is not just about the individual. It's not just about you doing better, even though God wants you to become sanctified and be more like Christ. But it's not just about you and me, individually. In fact, there are more than 59 one another commands in the New Testament. How many one another's? And over and over again, to love one another, to bear with one another's burdens, to admonish one another, to comfort one another, over and over again, the one another's of the Bible. How then do we overcome our own selfishness and love others and practice those things? Well, you have to get violent against your lovelessness. Because it's easy to love people who are easy to love. We all have those friends and family that they're just great to be around. It's so simple. You go to their house, you hang out with them, and oh man, the fellowship is so sweet. They're so kind to you. They, they make meals for you. They do all, all these wonderful things. They pray for you. They're just joyful to be around. And it's great. And then we all have that person who's the complete opposite. Where it's so much work. You, you, have, to, you have to actually go, you have to prep before you go there right? You all have relationships like this, and I'm sure I do too, where you, it's, you have to focus and get, get ready. Okay, it's going to be a hard thing. It's going to be a difficult conversation. It's going to be difficult to fill the, the, fill the space when we're meeting together. They're abrasive. They complain. They're, they're challenging. Whatever it is. But you know you have to do this because you want to love them. You want to obey the Word of God. You want to obey Him, the Lord Himself. You think Jesus had a difficult time in his humanness dealing with the rest of us? All of us, all of us are challenging to him because he's perfect. And the Bible says he didn't entrust himself to men because he knew it was in the heart of men. He knew what he was getting into. He spent time with the disciples and they were difficult. But he was patient with them, even though he did rebuke them at times. But he bore with them. You think it was difficult for Jesus to bear with Judas for three years? knowing from the beginning he was going to betray him. And yet Jesus still extended every possible kindness to Judas, a man who was otherwise his enemy. Did not Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? So what you have to do essentially is on your prayer list, if you keep one, take the person who gives you the most grief, who has been the most challenging, in every possible human essence, your enemy, and write their name at the top of your prayer list. Pray for those who persecute you. This takes radical, selfless love. 
But we see this modeled by Christ himself, where he loved us so much that he gave himself for us. The Bible says even when we were still enemies, even when we were his enemies, he reconciled us through his own death. He blessed the one who was spitting in his face. He bled for the one who whipped him. He wept for the one who betrayed him. Even while we were still enemies, he reconciled us because of his love. I I can't fathom in my human mind that kind of love. Can you? In other words, he died for us. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And by the way, that's how husbands are called to love their wives as application. This is a radical selflessness for the glory of God. That is also how wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. That's not fun to do always, is it? But no, it's a radical selflessness for the glory of God. I will honor you by loving my husband. I will honor you by giving myself up for my wife and doing things I don't want to do. Jesus told the disciples in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what this is all about. Again, this is not what it takes to get into heaven. Rather, this is the heartbeat of those who have believed on Christ and who are headed for heaven. This, this is the, the makeup of who we are as redeemed people. This is what God builds into us. This, this thirst for righteousness. Isn't that what Jesus says? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we are. We are those who by nature have somewhere in us this impulse to get violent against the things that war against us and to get aggressive after the kingdom of righteousness where this new constitution rises up inside of you and you say, I want Christ. I want Him. And I want His righteousness. And I want the glory of God. And I want the Spirit of God to chasten me and purge out of me the things that are not pleasing to the Father. And I want Christian community. And I want to love my church and love my enemies. And I want to love my family. And I want to see people saved from hell. These impulses that God builds into us, this, my friends, is holy violence. Where you are, as if it were observed, taking heaven by force. And so if you want to enter life, if you are entering into life, you must get violent by faith, against your sin, in discipline, and for love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know ourselves. You know us better but we know ourselves that that our impulses in the flesh are wicked. That if we were left to our own devices, we would continue to ruin ourselves in our own sinfulness. And this world is traveling at breakneck speed. 
into this hell of darkness. They can't even see what's coming. And Father, we are no better except that you have plucked us out of the flames, that you have poured your love and your mercy and your grace upon us, that you have given us your Son, who gave his life for us to redeem us. And the Bible tells us that you have written your law on our hearts. No longer we tell each other, do this or do that. No, it's in us. And by your Spirit, you've given us new life and you've given us this urge, this desire to chase righteousness. We don't continue in sin that your grace might abound. The Bible says we've died to sin and we don't want to live in it anymore. And so, Lord, I pray Not that my words would be empty words of of mindless passion, just to say things that are radical. But rather, Lord, I pray that you would do your work through your word to convict us, to get serious about the Christian life, to get serious about what's important. And that we know, Father, that from the days of John the Baptist all the way until even right now, your kingdom suffers violence. And the violent are the ones who take it by force. So, God, we know that you've gone ahead of us. You've opened up the gate. And we come through you. There's no other way to get to the Father than through Jesus Christ alone. We know that. And so help us as we walk not to live in the flesh, but to walk by the Spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.